get our Bibles open to Gospel of Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you today, raise your hand and someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. Um, but we are in the Gospel of Mark. I'm calling this Jesus in action because we're just seeing uh, Mark move so quickly. It has such a, a fast pace through the, the events of the life of Jesus. And so that's kind of how this book works out. Because of that, the way you divide these passages up sometimes feels a little funny because you're not looking at just one event, you're looking at multiple events. Uh, but this morning we're looking in Mark chapter 2 at two specific events. First, the healing of a paralytic, and then the calling of Levi and Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, the reason I'm putting those two together, because they fit together in the theme of how Jesus works with sinful people. Uh, that's one of the more powerful things about the ministry of Jesus Christ. I think uh, for me personally, when I think about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sins before I ever asked him to do anything for me. In other words, Jesus was for the sinner before the sinner was for Jesus, right? And that's what we see all throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, unfortunately, for some people in the lifetime of Jesus, and I would say even in today's world, there are some people who only look at religion as being for the clean people. What Jesus says is no religion is for the unclean to become clean. It's for the sinful person to be removed from the guilt and the shame of their sin. And so, so many believers, so many religious people have this backwards idea that you have to clean yourself up before you come to church. You have to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you can't clean yourself up until you come to me. And so we're going to see how that all plays out here in Mark chapter 2. You might recall that Jesus had been uh, out teaching around the Sea of Galilee. He was spreading the news. Uh, and we had kind of made the point that Jesus wasn't really here to heal people. That was just one of the byproducts of his powerful ministry, right? But what he was really trying to do was proclaim the good news that he was the Messiah that they were waiting for, that he was the king of the kingdom of God, here on earth. And as he was out preaching that, he became very popular because of the miraculous things he did. So in verse one of chapter two, it says, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room nor e uh, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And so we have kind of this interesting situation. Jesus comes, and he's staying at this house in Capernaum, and because he's there, because he's become so famous, the crowds are just swamping this house. They're just filling the house where he's at. You can't get to the house anymore. There's people everywhere. You can't even get in the door. There's just no more room to hear him teach. So everybody's kind of wanting to hear from Jesus, and they can't get to them. And Jesus is just doing at this point what he's always done. He's there speaking about the word. That was his purpose. He was there to teach. He wasn't really there to do miraculous things in this moment. He wanted to teach people the word of God. Well, as he's teaching this paralytic man has his friends carry him to the house. But the house is packed full of people. There's no way that he can get in there to hear the teachings of Jesus, to be near Jesus. So the friends, being 
creative like they are, they take the roof off the house. I don't know how you explain that to your insurance adjuster. Is that, a, is, is that an act of God? <laughs> like, how do you explain that? Poor, poor insurance adjuster, you know, he's going to have to come out and look at that house. But, you know, when you think of taking the roof off of a house, you have to put yourself in their context. Uh, essentially, the way they would build these roofs is they would put kind of these long uh, wooden poles across the roof, and then they would cover that with these palm branches, and then they would cover all of that with mud, and that mud would harden, and that would become the roof. So that would kind of keep it uh, from being... Uh, rain getting in and all of those things. Well, these guys have their paralytic friend. They want him to hear from Jesus, possibly because of the healing of Jesus, or maybe it's because of the teaching. But for whatever reason, these four friends, these are some amazing friends. They are not going to let their friend, who cannot get to Jesus himself, they're not going to let their friend miss out on what Jesus is doing. They're not going to allow it. So somehow they take their friend who's laying on uh, on, a, on a bed, basically, that they would carry around because he can't walk. Somehow they work this friend up on top of the roof of the house, and it says that they dug through the roof because it was all mud and dirt, and they dug through the roof and then removed those thatches and then lowered this guy down before Jesus. So if there wasn't already a crazy scene in the house that Jesus was teaching in, when the roof starts to shake while he's teaching and the mud starts to fall down through the ceiling, I think people understand something's going on outside. And then this guy, just somehow they lower him through onto the ground in front of Jesus. And imagine there's just people crowded around him. The guy couldn't get in the door, so they see this guy coming down. They're going to start to move back. I mean, this is quite the scene. But these friends wanted their paralytic friend to get to Jesus. And the picture of that is powerful for us. It's one of those great questions that we as Christians have to ask ourselves. If we really, truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, how much do we want our friends to know about it? I don't know if you uh, have ever heard of the guy, uh, there's uh, a, a, a magician's Penn and Teller. Have you ever heard of these guys? Well, Penn Gillette is uh, a very vocal atheist. He's just a very vocal atheist. He just, uh, uh, not, well, maybe he is mean about it. I don't know. But that's just who he is. Well, one day after one of their shows, this Christian man comes up to him and starts sharing the gospel with him. And he's passionate. He's sharing the gospel. Of course, Penn has heard probably this before. He probably is not really engaged in this. But then he goes online after this and records himself saying this. He basically says this, and he puts it out there for the whole world to see. He said, if what that man is saying is true, why aren't all the Christians trying to tell this message to all the unbelievers? Even the atheists could recognize if you believe this is true, you wouldn't want to do anything except tell people about it. This would be so vital and so important to you. And that's where these friends are. They've heard of the amazing things that Jesus has done and the things that Jesus is proclaiming about himself. They have to get their friend to Jesus. They're going to find a way to bring their friend to Jesus. And they literally, in this case, had to carry him there and lower him through the roof to get him in. But that's what they were willing to do to bring their friend to Jesus Christ. It just shows the heart of the people that were there. That shows, in a, in a way, they have faith already in Jesus Christ. Even if they don't have full understanding, they certainly have faith. 
Because you're not going to tear somebody's roof off of their house if you don't really believe that they can do the things they say they can do. You're probably not going to carry your friend around, right? You're probably not going to lower him into the midst of that meeting with everybody watching if you don't really believe that Jesus has the power of God. But these guys, they believed. And I love that phrase here that Jesus says this to them in verse 5. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus could see their faith. And this is not a spiritual thing. Everybody could see their faith. Everybody could. And and it's a little awkward, isn't it? Seeing their faith, Jesus forgives this guy's sins. But he didn't, you know, shake the preacher's hand. He didn't pray the sinner's prayer. He didn't do all the things that we say you have to do to receive the forgiveness of sins. There's no actual proof of repentance there. He hasn't even confessed his sins yet. He hasn't done any of the things we expected Jesus to expect him to do. I mean, remember Jesus told the rich man, you've got to go sell all of your possessions. Give them to the poor, then come to me. Well, what was the difference between the rich man and the paralytic and their friends? The rich man had no evidence of his faith. Jesus couldn't see the evidence of his faith. But with this guy, this paralytic, The evidence was obvious because everything was done to get to Jesus Christ, to be be near Jesus Christ. His faith became evident by action. It was evident by action. So again, we should be asking ourselves questions as we read the text. Where do we see ourselves in that? Would Jesus see our faith by our actions? The things that we do, would they be proclaiming Not just to Jesus, but to the crowds around us that were actually believers. There should be some evidence of our faith. James, I think, says it the best in James chapter 2. I'm going to turn there. You can if you want. Uh, But James uh, does this great job in in, uh, chapter 2 of the book of James of proclaiming all of these things. We all know verse 18. James says, But someone may, may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. And it's in a greater section there where he's trying to teach about faith. In verse 14 he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, if if one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is it? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And then he makes this next point in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe. Are the demons saved because they believe in Jesus? No. They believe and they shudder, they fear it. But we have to recognize, or as he says here in verse 20, but you, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? In other words, it's not really faith if it doesn't cause you to do anything. I can say all I want that I have faith in a chair, but until I sit in it, nobody believes that I have faith in that chair. I demonstrated this poorly a few years ago. Up on the stage, the piano player had a chair, and I thought, I'm going to prove I have faith in this chair. I'm going to stand on this chair. And so I stood up on the chair, not realizing that the thing spins. (laughs) 
And so I'm standing there, and the t- <laughs> it's just turning. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I also learned I have faith in my balance that particular day. I did not realize I had that kind of faith. But until you do something about your faith, there's no way for it to be recognized by anybody else. And so for us, when we make a profession of faith, the faith was probably already in our heart, right? But the work, the evidence of that faith would be the profession of faith or a baptism or in this case, carrying the paralytic to Jesus. Now, I don't want us to confuse ourselves and say you have to do works in order to be saved. I would say if you're saved, then the works will always follow. Or Bob says it this way, that saving faith always works. It always works. If you have faith, it will cause you to do something about it. And for Jesus, he could see the faith of this paralytic. And then he says something uh, probably more controversial at the end of that than even the faith versus works things. But certainly in its time when he said it, uh, what Jesus said after uh, he saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that causes things to stir in the room there. Uh, It says this in verse 6, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus said to that paralyzed person, a couple of interesting observations. Number one, the paralyzed person doesn't say, oh, I didn't come here for forgiveness of sins. I came here because I want to walk. He didn't reject that forgiveness of sins, regardless of why he was there, right? He was okay receiving the forgiveness of sins, whether he could walk or not. But the second thing that happened was the religious people, the scribes, those who would literally write out the word of God and prepare it to teach other people the word of God, these religious scribes, their radar goes off in their brain. Whoop, whoop, whoop. False teaching, false teaching, false teaching. Like immediately they're having a problem here because they know what the Old Testament law says. There can be no forgiveness of sins without a sacrifice. That God had given the law for a Jewish person to be forgiven of their sins. They had to go through this process where they would bring these animals, they would be sacrificed, they would be put to death, and then their flesh would be burnt, bringing a pleasing aroma to God. And they're looking around and they're like, paralyzed guy did not bring a lamb today. Jesus, you have blasphemed against God. You've spoken against his word and his character in two ways. First, because they wouldn't understand forgiveness of sins without a sacrifice, right? And second, he's blasphemed by saying he can do something that only God can do. Jesus is saying he can do something that only God can do. And they're right. It's absolutely blasphemy unless Jesus is God. And that's what he was proclaiming to them in that moment when he forgave this guy's sins. Jesus is proclaiming to them, I'm God. I have the authority to do things that only God can do. I can forgive sins. And for Jesus, he didn't need to see an actual sacrificial lamb in this moment because he recognized in that man's faith a faith that would 
save him from a sacrifice to come. And Jesus knows he will present himself in the future as the Lamb of God. And that's what all of those Old Testament sacrifices did. All of them were unable to save anyone from their sins. All of them were pointing, pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. There is no lamb out there that you can kill that will take away your sins. That was never what was happening in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when they brought their sacrifices, they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that is to come, even though they didn't fully understand it yet. And so it was an act of faith for them to think, okay, how do I want my sins to be forgiven? I'm going to take my lamb because God's word says I'm going to take my lamb. I'm going to march on down to the temple and I'm going to let him kill my lamb for my sins. It was proclaiming the gospel to them and they demonstrated their faith by bringing their sacrifices. Well, in this particular case, this man's faith was demonstrated as he was brought to Jesus Christ. And Jesus forgives him knowing that there is an ultimate sacrifice that all those other sacrifices were pointing to. He forgives this man of his sins. And so now we have these guys who are upset and they haven't actually said the words yet that they think Jesus is blasphemy, but in their brains, they're thinking it. That's blasphemy. They haven't said it out loud yet, but that's important because in verse 8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So he hears their thoughts. Just a good alert for Christians. He hears your thoughts, right? Just keep that in mind. Like he knew what they were reasoning in their hearts. He knew those things. And he responds to them before they could ever audibly say him, which I can tell you he's done that to me as well. There are times where I'm thinking something and God goes, you might want to check that. That's not quite right, Sean, and you know it. Just, oh, yeah. What was I thinking? You're right. I shouldn't murder the guy that cut me off. <laughs> Thou shalt not kill even that guy. <laughs> but you have these thoughts, these plans, these intents of your heart sometimes. Not even all of them that, that vile as I'm going to kill the guy that cut me off. But just even just a direction with your life sometimes, and God will just, without you even saying it yet, God just says, mm -mm, nope, that does not sit right. That's not the direction I would have you go. Well, that's what he's doing here. He's reading their minds, if you would. And then he puts out this bold test for them. He says, do you want me to prove to you that I can forgive sins? Well, let me ask you, and this is a rhetorical question in this case. He asks them a rhetorical question that he's going to answer for them. Which is easier, to tell this man that his sins are forgiven or that he's healed and he's able to walk now? So now they have to do math in their head. Let's see. Which is easier, to say you're forgiven or to be physically healed of paralysis? 
And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the answer just so you know. But I have authority even to forgive sins. And then he turns to the paralyzed guy and he says, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And the paralyzed guy, who we already know is a man of faith, right? Who's not been able to get up, gets up and picks up his own pallet and he just walks out. And everybody's jaw goes, huh? It says they were amazed. And why wouldn't they be, right? Like in these little towns, you couldn't be a paralytic and people wouldn't know it. Like they knew who this guy was. This is their neighbor, likely their friend. He's been paralyzed for who knows how long. He's had people carrying him around who can't care for himself. Can't care for himself in unsanitary times. I'll let you fill in the blanks what that means. And yet, Jesus just simply says to him, take up your pallet and walk. And the guy just gets up, picks up his pallet, and walks out of the room. And everybody's going, what? Did you see that? And what is their response? They begin to glorify who? God. Well, first of all, if you want to know if somebody's a false prophet or a false healer, who do they glorify? The response of the people was to glorify God. And I think the answer to the question, does Jesus have the authority to forgive people of sins, is pretty well answered in that one moment where he does something that nobody on earth at that time could do, right? Like all of these guys had seen that paralyzed guy and none of them were able to have him get up and walk. Jesus does it. They begin to glorify God because they've never seen anything like this. Now, isn't that a weird statement since Jesus has been healing people around town for weeks now? But they're talking about the whole scene, about everything that Jesus has been doing. And their questions on whether or not he can forgive people of sins had already been answered he had already displayed the power of God all throughout his ministry, this was just a reminder to them. And they go, oh, now I get it. Man. Now, I don't know that they fully get that this is God in their midst. I don't know that they fully get that. But they certainly recognize that he has the power of God, the authority of God to do the things of God, to heal these people and to forgive them of their sins. So, after all that, in verse 13... Jesus just went back to what he really wanted to do that day. On his agenda that day was teach. And so in verse 13, he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him. Why? Because he just did something amazing like they had never seen before, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Well, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. But sinners, And so now this situation goes outside. He's teaching by the shore. He walks by and sees the tax collector in his booth. And so if you could imagine 
uh, that you have all your fishing boats out there. And as those guys sell their stuff, they have to pay taxes. And so you have your conveniently placed IRS man right there at the shore. The tax collector is right there. And he is viewed by the Jews as an enemy of the people. Because Matthew, who is also called Levi here, is a Jewish man working for the occupying Roman government collecting taxes against the Jews. And so they view him as bad as any sinner that's out there. Matthew, in their mind, is a traitor to their people. Jesus walks by and sees Matthew just hanging out in his tax collector booth and says, hey, follow me. Now, how do you know that Matthew has faith in Jesus Christ? Because he follows him. Because Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew leaves his tax collecting booth and goes, okay, and just starts following him. And why wouldn't you? Like, you have been the outcast of your society. The people there don't like you, and now there's this hero in town. Like, everybody's celebrating and excited about Jesus. And Matthew says, the cool kid wants me to hang out with him? making you uncomfortable, Matthew. Should I say Levi from now on? You keep ducking your head every time I say Matthew. That's weird. <laughs> Levi, we'll use his Mark name here. Levi has been the social outcast, and now Jesus calls him. Jesus, this most popular guy who everybody's surrounding. Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew's like, are you kidding me? This man who has the authority of God asked me to follow him? I'm following that guy. How do you like me now? Look who I'm walking with. So, who do you think all of Matthew's friends were? Tax collectors and sinners. And so if Levi, I keep saying Matthew, Levi, Matthew, Levi. If Levi goes back home and wants to have a dinner party, who's coming to the dinner party? Tax collectors and sinners. And so now the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the people, see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they have some questions. Now, it's funny how all this is kind of slowly unveiling itself. First, they had questions in their head. Well, Jesus read their mind. So then they start to ask questions of the disciples. So uh, what's, your, what's your master doing over there? Like, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't he understand how that could ruin his reputation? Like, don't you get how your reputation is oftentimes made by the people who you're with? I think we all understand that, right? Like, we've taught our kids that. Don't hang out with the bad kids. You know why? Because it'll ruin your reputation, and sometimes they'll influence you to be bad kids. There's only one little problem with that. We're all bad kids, right? Like, that's the whole point of Scripture, of sin, of original sin, going back to the beginning, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God to a certain extent. There's this kind of this whole attitude there from the religious leaders that are saying, Jesus, if you're really going to be a religious leader, you cannot hang out with sinful people. And Jesus says to his disciples, sit down, boys, I got this. Let me answer your question for you. And again, Jesus is great with words, and so he paints a very simple picture in words here. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. His illustration is great. Could you ever have a great doctor who never hung out with sick people? That would be a terrible doctor, right? Like, how do you ever doctor if you never have a sick person near you? 
Jesus says, just like a doctor hangs out with sick people, a savior hangs out with people who need to be saved. The man who has authority to forgive sins hangs out with those who needs that man. Jesus is like, this is why I'm here. I came to call sinners back to God. He's not concerned with the righteous and what they think. I've used this story before, but uh, there's a book out there called The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven, and it's about evangelism. And it's all about this pastor who uh, had this ministry of of evangelism, and he, he really got on fire for it when he realized that the only time he has ever throughout all eternity to do evangelism is while he's alive. So when he's dead, there's nobody else he can evangelize because he's going to be in heaven and everybody there already is saved. And so he kind of gets this like excitement about evangelism, just really starts going after evangelism. And he did what Jesus did. He hung out with the least of these. And so in his city, they had a huge problem with prostitution. So where was he every Friday and Saturday night? He was out on the streets with prostitutes and pimps sharing the gospel. How does that look if you're driving down the street and you look over and there's your pastor hanging out with prostitutes and pimps? Do you think you might want to change churches? Well, that's certainly what happened, that there were a number of people that got upset with him and said, you can't do that. You're ruining our reputation. And he said, I'm doing what my Savior did. I'm not saying he was partaking of their services. That would be sin. But he was spending time with sinners for the purpose of bringing sinners to Jesus Christ. I've had this uh, amazing revelation. I had a more active evangelistic ministry before I became a pastor. Because I worked every day in the midst of sinners. And so I had opportunities to one-on-one share the gospel and lead people to Christ. Well, now I work every day with Susan, Aaron, and Tom. And Carrie, so sinner, there's one there. I'm not telling you which one, but (laughs) (laughs) joking. (laughs) But it's, it's a little bit different group, right? I've had no success leading those people to Jesus Christ because they're already there. There should be some part of your life where you're investing the love of Jesus Christ into the people that he would love. Now, I'm not saying we should all have the ministry of preaching to prostitutes. That's not what God has called all of us to. But all of us have circles of influence, of friends and family, of co-workers, of people that we go to school with. All of us have those circles of influence. Our faith should be evident to the people that we work with, the people that we're family with, the people that are our friends or that we go to school with. Our faith should be evident to them. And because of that, you now have opportunity to share what you believe. And I'm not asking you to be the world's greatest evangelist. I'm not saying all of you are even gifted as evangelists. I'm just saying that all of you have the opportunity and that the faith, the life of faith that you've been living in the public eye 
people will want to know why. And everyday conversations can be turned into very simple foretelling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Foretelling, foretelling. I'm not going to predict the gospel. I'm going to preach it. I'm going to share the gospel in very simple ways with the people that I know, my coworkers, my family, my friends, the people that I go to school with, the people that I interact with. It should just be a very natural part of what we do because that's what our Savior did. The gospel exists for those who need it. So we should be thinking now, who are our co-workers who don't know Jesus Christ? Who are the people in our family who don't know Jesus Christ? Who are the friends we hang out with who don't know Jesus Christ? Who are the people we interact with for you teenagers or younger at school who don't know Jesus Christ? Is my faith evident to them? And is there opportunity for me to share the very basic things that I believe with them. You want to know who the greatest evangelist in my house is? Of course, my wife. She's always the hero of all my stories, right? But where she works, people know her by her faith. And she's had opportunity to share the gospel with a number of people where she works. And she would never think of herself as an evangelist. She would never be one to like stand on the, pre- on the street corner and start preaching the gospel. That's not who she is. But she gets into all these weird conversations where people just start sharing stuff with her. And she'll just start with a simple, can I pray for you? It just starts like that. Next thing you know, you're open to a spiritual conversation because almost everybody says yes. I have yet to have somebody say, Psh, no. In a personal conversation like that. And now you have an open. She's built these relationships. And then they start asking her, hey, I've got this problem at home. What do I do about this? She goes, oh, well, let's pray about it. What does the scripture say? It's just very simple. And then through that, there's people who are now in the kingdom of God just because she had conversations with people that she works with. She never saw herself as an evangelist, but that's the outcome of it. So when we think about this concept of Jesus hanging out with sinners and Jesus forgiving sin, uh, I'm always reminded, I've told you this before, I keep these verses in the front of my Bible here on sticky notes. It used to be written in my other Bible, but then pages fell out of that Bible, so I had to get another Bible. Now pages are falling out of this Bible, but I'm hanging on to it because I just have Mark left in the New Testament, and I'm not getting rid of it until I'm done. So, But I always bring these verses up when I talk about sin because I think it's so powerful for us that we remember when Jesus Christ died on the cross, paying the price for our sins, that something was actually happening there. It's not just a mantra that we keep saying, but something actually happened for us who believe and can happen for those that we, pro- that we preach the gospel to if they would believe. What is it that God does with our sins? In Psalm 103, it says, He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. Go as far east as you can and as far west as you can That's how far away our sins are from us. Now, we don't want to get into physics in a globe and eventually you meet on the other side. We want to get straight out, right, out into space. And then you get in space, things bend. Just talk to your physics teachers, they'll tell you. But as far as the east is from the west, 
That's how far our sins are away from us in Jesus Christ. He takes our sins, throws them behind his back. What do you throw behind your back? Garbage, stuff you're done with, things you don't need anymore. Throw it behind your back. That's what God has done with our sins, just thrown behind his back. He's done with them. He doesn't need to know about them anymore because of our faith in Jesus Christ. It says he tramples them under his feet, which I actually like to envision that in my head, like Jesus taking my sins, throwing them on the ground, and done with you. I don't need that anymore. Like, can you just envision like the God of the universe taking your sins, all of them, throwing them on the ground and just stomping on them. Done. He's done with them. He buries our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. Just buries them in the sea of forgetfulness. It says that the all-knowing God, the God who knows everything, remembers our sins no more. And so if we were to come before God or if some accuser would come before God to list out our sins, God would say, I don't remember that happening. I don't remember that one. I don't remember that one. I don't remember that one. How powerful is that? I remember my sins pretty well. But God does not remember our sins. And then lastly, he cancels the certificate of debt listing out all of our sins. I'm going to read this one out of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2.14 says this, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He nailed our sins to the cross in himself. Put them to death. They're gone. what Jesus did for our sins, and he's the one that has the authority to do it. It's always interesting to me when I think through my life that there were times where I was in sin, feeling guilt and shame, even as a believer, afraid to confess my sins to God. It doesn't even make sense. But that's what shame and guilt will do to you. Afraid to confess your sins to God? God forgives our sins and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's who he is. If we have sins, we should be confessing them to God because in Jesus Christ, the authority for that sin to be removed from us is there. So we can stand before God guilt-free. And we should remember that he has the authority to forgive not just the paralytic sins, but he has the authority to forgive our sins, your sins. He has the authority to forgive the sins of your friends and family who need to hear the gospel. Have you ever seen somebody's life who is mangled by guilt and shame because of the things that they've done? But they can't get out they can't get away from their feelings of being overwhelmed by what they've done and who they've harmed and who they've offended. I remember talking to a gal one time and inviting her to church, and her response was, the roof would cave in if I walked in the door. 
I challenged her to see if it was true. Like, I don't think it would, but, but let's see. Show up at church sometime. But it told me how she saw herself in the light of God. She needed to know. All of us thought that at one time about ourselves. There are people out there that need to know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Amen? Okay, I'm going to pray. And then we have another baptism this morning. Is that accurate? Is she back there? Okay. Yeah, make sure you guys get back there and get changed. Then I'll change real fast. And then we'll have a baptism after Doug does his final song. Uh, but just know this. Uh, scripture tells us to confess our, our sins to one another and be healed. Uh, it's just a very simple and profound idea in Scripture. Sometimes we need to confess our sins. If that's you today, don't leave without taking a moment to pray. Just you and God. Or if you feel like you need to share it with somebody else, we'll have folks around at the front here or at the prayer room that would love to be able to take those things before God with you so you don't have to do it all by yourself. They would stand with you and bring those sins before God so that you can walk out of here forgiven. That God would not remember your sins anymore. Amen? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I would pray, Lord, as we um, approach your word today, that you would do what you always do, that you have always made your word do work in the hearts of your people. So, Father, I pray that everyone in the room would have a heart that is good soil today, that as they've received this word, that it would take root in them and it would begin to grow, that we would be in the regular habit of confessing our sins, that we would be in the regular habit of proclaiming to people that they can be forgiven of their sins. So, Father, I would ask as well that as we see examples of faith in other people's life, that it would build up our faith, that it would build up our courage to live out our faith. Father, I'm so thankful for all the baptisms we've had lately. It's just such a clear picture of somebody believing in faith on the things that you've asked us to do and then going out and doing them. That we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, that we would be doers of the word. That we wouldn't just be people of faith by word, that we would be people of faith by action. Lord, we thank you for this today. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.